welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Where our goal is to make politics more accessible and less intimidating. The show features an interview with an expert in the political field, walking us through the many cues we have about politics, civics, government, and more. By providing civic education in the places we are, on our phones, and in the language we speak. And yes, we know, we say like a lot. It's kind of the point. Because politics needed a rebrand. Welcome back to Girl in the Gov, the podcast. Happy Wednesday. Happy interview day. And happy... Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, what's like a... Okay. All right. Honestly, you know what I feel like has been an underrated, not underrated, like underrepresented animal as of late? Camels. Like... I really, okay, this is, you're going to think this is so weird, so but I, niche. hold on, like, you know how there are, like, seemingly, like, animal motif trends, like, a few years ago, llamas blew it up, like, you go into, like, any stationery store, any bookstore, whatever, every pillow, every stationery set, like, there's a llama option, llama about it, socks, like, there's that, then there's, like, the time, like, I love, like, we know I love wiener dogs, but... There was a wiener dog trend at one point where every single like little like cutesy accessory or home accessory that involved an animal was a wiener dog. And I just, there's an elephant one. There are like definitely trying to animal motifs. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. And I just haven't seen anything. With I'm not like particularly it. hanging out in stationary um, <laughs> shops much to really catch on to the trends. But justice for camels, I suppose, uh, couldn't have been that had to be number one most niche conversation tangent that we've ever had on the show. So thank Up you there. all for st- sticking with us um, mm-hmm. through that. And if you little- see a camel like motifed thing, like it could be like a cute little box, like whatever it is. It's going to be one of those things now that you have like television on and you're not. Yeah, you're going to see it everywhere. But tag us. Send us a pic. I'm I'm almost manifesting it because justice for camels. Oh, my God. New new mascot. Move over, Biggie. No, No, Biggie cannot not be. (laughs) I know. Oh, my God. I miss him. Stop. I can't think about him. He's at home, but he I haven't. I feel like when I'm not home for like more than a week, I'm like, it's been a year since I've seen him. Well, because his little face, you just add some pics. Yeah, we have mutual, like a shared album and you get like notified every time someone adds You see the one and like the, the sun. The shadow. And, oh my God. That picture is insane. He is just a special creature. But if you guys one haven't seen Biggie yet, side eye. you should. Oh, so much. He gives such hard side eye. It's insane. But yeah, if you guys don't know Biggie or know what he looks like, then just head to our Instagram and follow us if you don't yet. Mm. It's very important you do. We we not only share, obviously, really cute pictures of Biggie, but we also share like really important like action items <laughs> and resources in the political space that I think you would also deem helpful. So just oh, a little really? plug on that front. Um, Another plug on a different front regarding mm. also my family. Oh, I just wanted to give a shout out. in the business today. Okay. Yeah, because my cousin, who is, I think she's 20. She's in college right now at UCLA. And she is on her way to passing her first piece of legislation in the California State Legislature. She's been advocating for, um, let's see, the AB 1138 Assembly Bill. 1138, the safe kit accessibility. It would require the governing board of each community college district, the trustees of the California State University, the regents of University of California, and other governing boards of independent. Oh my God, I cannot read. Holy, give me a Zoom. There we go. <laughs> Post secondary institution shall provide to students free of charge and to the extent possible in a manner that protects student anonymity, transportation from a local sexual assault, forensic examination, or sexual abuse response team exam center for a qualified healthcare provider to administer the sexual assault forensic medical evidence kit. So her her mom, who is my great aunt, actually, it's funny because she is my grandpa's youngest sister because my grandpa is the oldest of 12. Yep. So my dad and my and his aunt, who is her mom, are literally like the same age and her kids are younger than me. 
So I need a family tree. No, I know my that's she, my, like she this my cousin who is doing this bill, Kate. She calls my dad man cousin because they're cousins and he's <laughs> fifty five or whatever. I don't even know how old he's at this point, and she's twenty. And Wait, I'm obsessed he, with that. Yeah, so he's like the man cousin, and most of his cousins are like my age. So <laughs> that's what happens when your dad is the oldest of twelve children. So there's that little family tree moment. But, Wait, that's so cool. So yeah. is the bill? Is I mean, we know I'm bad at the audio processing scenario. Of like, am I correct in that it's regarding like being anonymous in terms of like reporting? around rape kits and yeah and i think it's that's- providing like a more accessibility to them because i think that's mm. a big issue i can i can send the link to the little write-up about it because there's full background and, and everything um, but her aunt or sorry my aunt who's her mom said it has bipartisan support and unanimously passed committee so i think they are good as far as getting it to the finish line so that's a awesome. proud moment for the medved family shout out to kate and shout out to this bill and and her team who has been who have been advocating for this. And I I guess this is one of many pieces of legislation she's working on. They have other bills that are that are in the works. So wow. I know. Not the yeah. only medved in politics. Go figure. I know, actually. No. I think us two are the only only ones, I believe. Okay. But all right. Look at us. Well, you know where this bill is also going to land? It's going to be two places. Newsletter? Newsletter. GovHub Aww. newsletter. Yeah, it's going to be there next week. We'll include her in back on our bill shit. And in the meantime, we will put it back on our bill shit up on the regular Girl in the Gov account on Instagram, at Girl in the Gov. And it'll be there. So go check it out. And we'll also link it, like I said, in the newsletter. And if you yeah. haven't, already subscribe subscribe to the newsletter do that now and also what you can do in the show notes you can do that at girlinthegov.com get a little pop-up yada 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 but also make sure your friends are subscribed forward it to them and what's so nice is it just makes staying civically engaged a little bit easier you know it's bringing resources to your inbox it's bringing action items it's bringing reads things to stay up on the whole nine yards so yeah definitely sign up it's a great it's a great newsletter it really is really is speaking of other things that are included in that newsletter are Mm -hmm. things about the podcast and speaking i'm just trying to make a transition here i'm just going to talk about top stories honestly and what Mm. we talked about yesterday (laughs) (laughs) so yesterday we had a we had a long one top stories full of rants full of a big chunky news and i think you guys should go listen if you haven't yet because we Mm. have some election watch updates we talk about the tragedy that happened around ralph yarl and all the updates there we also talk about the wonky debt limit conversation and mccarthy and all of his political theater around it we also talk about the senate absences that have been a huge topic of conversation this week and whether, you know, Feinstein should resign, how McConnell's back, what he's doing regarding everything. What was the other two? Dominion. Dominion and Fox News updates on that lawsuit. And the GOP, a.k.a. Jim Jordan's little political theater moment. Oh, yeah. With Alvin Yeah. Yep. So more drama and political theater around the Trump prosecution and all of that so go listen if you haven't yet again there's a lot a lot to run through wait though that just reminded me running through that that there was a story that broke after we finished recording and it was within like the gun violence category Mm -hmm. and that was that a young woman was driving upstate upstate new york with her friends turned into the wrong driveway and went to turn around in that driveway they're looking for their friend's house and a man, white man, stepped outside of his house and shot and killed one of these young women. Mm-hmm. And then, what it also also wild is then the police basically had to pull him out of his own house. He would not surrender himself. Yeah, that's what I mentioned yesterday. I like saw that like break before we started recording, and I was like, pretty sure this literally just also happened to a young 
oh, white woman. Ooh, now and he got charged. Second- yeah, he got charged I right think, immediately with second degree. That makes sense. I didn't realize that was the story you're talking about because I don't think like I didn't see it till after. So I was like, yeah, I mean, yeah. something like that has happened before. But like, mm-hmm. it's just so crazy. But it's, it's crazy like, that those you can both- pull into someone's driveway to turn around like that. And somehow that warrants getting shot at. And yeah. Killed. Like, and, and that's the thing, something someone's doorbell, like it's right on me. And that's kind of something, one of the moments where I was literally thinking, like when I was listening back and thinking, oh, I should have said this when talking about this conversation, because I like mentioned that this is while the Ralph Yarl situation has a lot of like racist bullshit attached to it. We also talked about like the gun conversation and right. how this the stand your ground laws and honestly just our overall perception of guns in this country is like a shield like the fact that that man even felt like he could do that and and whether he was threatened or not by a young black man like the fact that he thought he could do that is because of the standard ground laws and it becomes like this this shield for people to be able to do these kind of egregious acts and it all kind of falls back on the way that we prioritize like guns in this country and people's like access to them. Yeah. And yeah, it's just so wild and so wild that like such similar instances happen so close to each other like that. But totally. I, again, I think it's just another kind of variation of this gun conversation though around like being able to protect yourself needs to be up for debate in a, in in some senses because like you shouldn't be able to just claim that and yeah you know shoot at somebody because they're on your property like what it, like what is this the 1800s like no literally come like on. wild wild west yeah literally wild wild west that's just like so the mentality crazy. it that's, seems like totally it's like okay every everything is a gun range now apparently you know exactly. it's like what like and i think i I don't remember who said this. I saw this on a post, but it was like, why is it that like even the simplest of like everyday mistakes that everybody makes now are deadly? Like we've created a society at so this point true. where literally like you step foot the wrong way, you breathe the wrong direction, and that could be the end. And if you're a person of color, your tiny little mistakes that you make and that every human makes like are even more dangerous for you yeah. because of the color of your skin. And that's just, it's so true. Yeah, like small mistakes are deadly. It's so fucked up. And yeah, I don't know. I know. Such such weird, weird stories, but I think an important piece of the conversation. And like, again, something we mentioned in top stories was like more reason why if you're getting a gun, you should go through training and be able, if you want to be able to protect yourself, you should actually learn how to protect yourself and assess threats and like be mindful and smart with how you do that. And that's like something that's very needed and something that even Congressman Garamendi kind of like touched on in our episode with him last week. If you haven't listened, go listen. We talk all about gun reform, but he talked about like the NRA and how the NRA originally was like a organization that helped like train people on how to use guns and he was like my dad like literally let us touch one until we went through extensive training like that's how it used to be and now it's just like a fucking free-for-all right and that's why we're seeing what we're seeing with just these insane weird instances of violence and even just the moments too where there's like literally like toddlers getting hold of guns on accident and shooting people like can we get it together it's just common sense type shit literally common sense it's so beyond me like i the process that goes through people's head that think the opposite i really don't get it at this point and no we actually didn't talk about in top stories which i guess we can talk about a little bit now is the nra conference that happened this past weekend Mm. and the nra nra president talking about how they will destroy the political careers of anyone that gets in their way Yeah. And it's just so interesting. Like, I'm sure there's a democratic force on the other side that does something similar in some types of lobbying capacity. Yeah. I don't know who it is. I don't know what it is. We should like put our thinking caps on about that at some point. But regardless, the NRA is certainly the Republican variation on a theme of that. And that is just, first of all, those words are just terrifying. That like, not even terrifying. Maybe that's the wrong way to put it. Like the ability, the way in which this 
guy in this organization like operates as this like autocrat like disrupting mm-hmm. the entire american democratic system yeah is such a larger issue in so many ways and i just yeah and for him to like for that to be just like an open open messaging of the nra of like we'll, we'll destroy your career if you don't fall in line and like that's literally why again it all falls back on the nra and their power over our government and why we can't get any reforms done and it's like if you're a politician and you are running and you're a republican and the nra controls everything and everyone and puts money in people's pockets the nra needs to be dealt with facts facts straight facts they need to be just, you know, put out of business, to say the very least. To say it in the kindest, most PC way. Yeah. Put out of business. Closed for biz. R.I.P. Yeah. That's how I feel about that Poor one. reels. Well, let's get into this episode. We have a really awesome guest today, and we get to talk about a state that we haven't touched on yet. I know, which I was but actually I was thinking about that, and I was like, wait a second. Have we really gone this long without talking about Missouri politics? I don't think we have. And I guess. I don't think we have. Yeah. I mean, maybe we've touched on it in terms of top stories, but in terms of actual interview episodes zeroing in on the state, I believe, like Maddie said, this is the first. I mean, we have some other states that we haven't covered yet either, and we will absolutely be getting to those. So also to that point, before I even say anything further on the introduction, if you're a listener and you have a state rep that you're a fan of or a local rep, that you're a fan of or that you would really like to hear more from, let us know. Sign to our DMs, send us a note. Curious to always hear what reps are on y'all's radar that you'd like to hear more from. So that's the tea on that. In terms of our guest, our amazing guest is Deb Lavender. She's state representative from Missouri. She's a Democrat. Let's just clarify that real freaking fast. And in this conversation, we talk about education policy, the budget, how that actually works in the state of Missouri and elsewise. And we get into just what Missouri politics look like, how challenging the landscape is, especially for Democrats in that state. And let me tell you, I think I said this in top stories too, we could have talked to Deb for hours. There are so many rabbit holes to go down in just Missouri politics itself. But this one in terms of education and education funding in this way so interesting and again has so many rabbit holes to it but we get into it we yep. get into it so if you are interested in missouri politics this episode is for you if you're interested in politics this episode is for you if you're interested in education policy if you're curious about what a budget looks like how it happens like why there's Fire all this budget talk. i mean let <laughs> me tell you sounds like a pregame speech <laughs> Okay, fire up the crowd, <laughs> fire up the team. Let's go. Shots, shots, Come shots, on, boys. Shots, shots. <laughs> go off. Literally go off. But speaking of going off, go continue to hit play and listen to this episode. So without further ado, here's Deb. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. If you work in the political space, listen up. Here at Girl on the Gov, we have built our whole business around effectively marketing political messaging through digital media. And we want to help you do the same. We have a full digital media consulting menu these days tailored specifically to the political space. Number one, hashtag viral. It is our paid social media newsletter that comes straight to your inbox every Tuesday. If you've ever thought uh, this meeting could have been an email, this newsletter is for you. We give basics to best practices, platform updates, and the content ideas you need to go hashtag viral. And for offering number two, if you want some one-on-one face-to-face attention, we offer that too. We provide social media audits and consulting to help you achieve the conversions and engagement you've been hoping for from your social media content. And number three, in our newest edition, Podcast Consulting, we are the minds behind this gorgeous political podcast for young voters that we've been running for two and a half years now. So we know a thing or two about how not only to get a podcast off the ground, but how to grow an audience. We provide podcast consulting for anyone trying to get their podcast started or provide podcast audits for those who have started their pod but want to see it take off. Podcasting is a great new in-house digital media marketing tool and a great way for any candidate elected or org to amplify their work and their voice. 
So head to girlinthegov.com slash consulting to learn more about our services and to sign up for hashtag viral to start slaying the beast that is digital media. Skeptical about custom beauty? I get it. My feed is flooded with customized this and personalized that, all promising to fix my split ends and my dry skin and all of the things. But when pros says custom, they actually mean it. It's no gimmick. And your formula literally couldn't exist without you. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair care and skin care is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. Their in-depth consultation analyzes over 80 factors for a complete view of your life and beauty goals, and they get personal. Pros covers everything from diet, exercise, and stress levels to uncover what's impacting your hair and skin health. They even asked me about, you know, where I live, the water hardiness that I have coming from my shower, UV index, all of the things. Next, they recommended a full routine of truly personalized products, which were only produced after I placed my order. Nothing premixed, nothing off the shelf. And I know from experience, one-of-a-kind formulas equal one-in-a-million results. Since I switched to pros, I've noticed that my hair is definitely fuller. I have thinner hair that just like will not hold a curl or stay voluminous. And ever since using pros, that has changed. But don't just take my word for it. In a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering an exclusive trial offer. So you can see the difference custom care can make. 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash girlandgov. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash G-I-R-L-A-N-D-G-O-V for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas pros.com slash girl and gov. Hello. Hello. We are so excited to have you on the podcast. For all those listening, we have Missouri State Representative Deb Lavender on the podcast today, and we have so much to chat about. Yes, we do. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Well, let's get into a little bit of background before we get into all the rabbit holes, all the topics. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into politics and specifically Missouri State politics? Well, I... You know, and I'll reference it sooner, I, I grew up in New England, and I had the opportunity to go to Girl State in between my junior and senior year, and a lot of people know of that. So I've always been interested in politics, and I call it current events. But then I went to school in Wisconsin, and then I got a degree in physical therapy, and then I came right down to Missouri. So you don't know, at, for me, I didn't know at that young age the difference of politics from a blue state to a red state. And actually that long ago, I'm not sure there was quite as much distinction as there is today. But I have to tell you, I have that disease that I think a lot of young women have, women in general have, is I didn't think I was qualified to run for office. I didn't think I had the right background. So as a healthcare provider, it wasn't business. It wasn't law. It wasn't those types of things that a lot of times you see elected officials having. So for a long time, I just didn't think I was qualified. And then as we all kind of at different moments in life, you grow up, you look around, you start getting a better sense of the world around you. I started to look to see who was elected and I thought, wow, I actually think I could do just as good, if not better. And then, of course, what's getting involved in politics, of course, you need somebody from all backgrounds. You want your healthcare workers, you want your teachers, you want your manufacturing people, you want your attorneys. But it is what brings the diversity of experiences. But I think for so many women, we just don't think we're qualified. We don't think we are capable of doing the work, and especially if you have children. But I'm very happy to say I served with women who have families, who have children, and seem to do a great job. Yeah, love it. Well, what did that kind of start to politics look like for you? Like you mentioned, you are from the New England area. You ended up in Missouri politics. Can you kind of explain how that all happened and you know how you well, got after, to where you are now? After I went to school in Milwaukee, I came to St. Louis. So I've been in St. Louis for really most of my life. And it was just, it was a time that I was starting to think about running for office. 
And honest to goodness, unfortunately, my state representative passed away of a heart attack the day after a session in 2006. And I had just really thought, okay, I think I'm going to do this. It was 2005, or it was 2005. And I was looking at 2008 of running. Mm. And all of a sudden I'm confronted with, oh my goodness, here's an open seat. And I really had not been involved or done much of anything, but I started raising my hand to say, hey, I'd like to run for this open seat. Well, appropriately, I wasn't chosen. Nobody knew who I was at that time. But that catapulted me into the political arena. I helped the woman they did put up for the special election. I helped on her next campaign. Unfortunately, she lost. And then when she chose not to run again in 2008 was when I started running for state rep. You may know my story. I ran four times before I won. I was always running against the same homegrown, large family incumbent. And so first time in 2008, I did get 47 and a half percent of the vote. I thought, well, that's pretty good your first time. The second time, unfortunately, was a Tea Party year, 2010. And I lost that election by more than I had. In 2012, after redistricting, the district was a little bit more favorable. And I only lost by 266 votes. And so then I did make the decision in an open seat in 2014, I was going to go one more time. And then, of course, that's what I won. I won in 16. I won in 18. You may know I ran for a state Senate seat in 2020, and I lost that. And then was able to come back and run for my last term. Missouri has term limits. So I'm now back in my last term in the house. I think that is such a great lesson of trying and trying again and not giving up. And I especially think in the political arena, there is so much of that attitude of, ah, I lost. Okay, like, guess that's what it is, or someone lost in that seat. So we shouldn't put any money or any infrastructure there to, you know, continue building that power. And I think your story is such a great tale to that of being like, keep pushing, keep trying. Every time there's going to be a different outcome and there's more conversations to be had and more inroads to be built. So it's super exciting to not just have you in office, but of course, see that path and that progress. And that's something I know we tell people a lot is keep pushing. Like, just because one election is lost doesn't mean it's going to be a loss the next time. Like that's building the groundwork for that next time well, and for that next person, or even if it is the same person running for that spot. Then I think you're a great example of that. And then also in Colorado, I mean, at the you know national level, we have Adam Frisch, who's running again for Lauren Bobart's seat. And that's another race under 500 or just over 500 votes was the determiner. And it's like, okay, now people know him. Now we're going to go back and continue that conversation and see where it goes. So I am so excited to learn of your path and know that's the scenario that happened because such a great example for all. And then to sort of that larger point that you said of like homegrown incumbent, first of all, I'm curious what that what that means. So if you wouldn't mind sharing some, you know, deep dive terminology on there. And then also to just sort of painting the landscape of Missouri politics, because I think those two seem to go hand in hand. Yes. So homegrown incumbent. So until I ran, I'm pretty sure, I won't say 100%, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to tell you the only people who ever ran for office in the district had been born and raised and gone to high school in that town. And it was part of the moniker. Oh, yes, I graduated from high school in this year. Well, I did in this year. Well, I, you know, born and raised. And my mom was here. And there was always such a home town appeal to this is why I'm running for office. So I do believe I was one of the first people to not be homegrown, not to have graduated from the local high school who ran for public office. And I've been very happy since then. It seems to have broken the mold. You certainly have some of that still. You'll still have people run who have, oh, this is when I graduated from high school the year and where I lived and all. But there was a school board election. Oh, goodness eight-ish years after I had started running, and of six candidates, only one of them had been born and raised and graduated from the high school there. So I was really delighted that I think I've made a difference just even in who feels they're able to run for office. But I'm not sure that it's an uncommon feature to grow up in a town, and whether it's rural, suburban, or urban, I think you do have people that this is their lifelong home. And I had been a resident of the town for 20 years, 
but we laughed at one point in time that that still made me a carpet banger living in that town because I wasn't homegrown with a high school graduation. So even 20 years in a town was a carpet bagging kind of situation. That's crazy. But, yes. But I think with my persistence, that worked better. I certainly got to know people and they got to know who I was. So that's a lot of what made that difference. But politics is a lot of it. That's why incumbents are so powerful. Even if you don't like somebody's policy, and I was told by good Democrats, well, Dad, we're voting for your opponent because he coached my kids literally. He went to school. He graduated from school with my brother. Oh, I'd like to know somebody who's in the state house. I had good Democrats tell me they were going to vote for a conservative Republican because of that friendship, long-term relationships. And then the other thing I said, too, is he had a large family. So if you didn't know him, you knew his brother or his sister mm-hmm. or his children or his father or his son. Or So there was just such a web that his family had woven inside of the community. And that's what made it hard. I think the last race that I lost by those 260 votes, had he not had such a large family, had he not had such strength in that incumbency, you know, there could have been the possibility I would have won that year. I feel like that needs a name, like the family factor, or like there's something there, we'll workshop it, but that's super interesting. Yeah. 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 And I I do think it goes a long way. Yeah, totally. It does for sure. And I think that's probably a common theme in a lot of different rural communities across the country. Even, I mean, probably even bigger cities too. It's just like, you know, first of all, that name recognition is goes so far regardless of, you know, what race you're looking at. But can you tell us a little bit about these Missouri politics? What is it like there? What's kind of, what's the landscape? What's at stake with the work you do? Can you kind of paint that picture of what Missouri state politics is looking like these days? Sure. From when I stepped into the legislature in January 15, we knew the Republicans had a supermajority. A supermajority is when two-thirds of the people in your chamber are on the opposite party. And that mostly comes into play when there are vetoes of a governor. Our state, I believe most states need a two-thirds majority to overturn a veto. But in our state, you also need it if you want an emergency cause. So we have something that we think is important. We think it's so important. The moment the governor signs it, it should be in effect. And so it's an emergency clause. And you need the same two-thirds to be able to do that. So we had a bill passed last week, and, and I'm going to apologize. I don't remember what it was. The sponsor thought this is an emergency And the Democrats said, no, not really. There there are specific purposes. It's supposed to be for the health, the well-being of the citizens of the state. And we did think his bill, we thought it was important. We helped him pass it, but we didn't feel it qualified for emergency status. So he did not get the two-thirds vote that he needed for that. Maddie, one of the ways I describe Missouri politics, working against the supermajority, And today there's 52 of us. When I first got to the house, there were 45. So we have, and pardon me, 46. So we have picked up those six seats since 2015. So we are are getting a little bit more. But you can imagine there's 52 of us and 111 of them. So every morning we get up, we get dressed, we go into battle and and think about just even playing a tug of war game. Mm -hmm. We've got 52 on our side, and they've got 111 on their side, and somebody says, go for the tug of war. We get pulled down, we get pulled through the mud, mud, you get bloodied, you get scratched, and then you go home. And the next day, you get up to do it all over again. So there is not anything that we have the power to do at this moment, except perhaps an emergency cause or needing the two-thirds vote for something. If they are our supermajority is 109, they have 111. If two of them aren't on the floor, three of them aren't on the floor, then they need our vote. And that's not uncommon. If you can imagine 163 people, you don't have 100% attendance every day. So that's the only time they really need our vote. Now, recently, I'll say they need Democrat votes. It was a tax credit for building new railroads. And there are 30 to 35 core Republicans who never want to expand tax credit. And the only way that would pass, you need 82 votes to pass. The only way that bill was going to pass was with Democrat votes. 
And so there are times like that, that they're passing policy, that there is a hardcore version of the Republican Party that will not vote for that. It's not very often. And on this occasion, we actually flexed our muscle and we voted present and the bill actually failed to pass. And it was Democrats saying, you know, there really are times you need us here. Therefore, you really should spend some time talking to us and educating us about what this bill is and asking for our votes that you don't assume that that's what we're going to do for you. Yeah, totally. And I'm curious in terms of, you know, there's those moments with that particular tax credit, but other issues too, like, do they include you guys in conversations? Like, are you guys ever sitting in closed door meetings with them or they're like, "Eh." I'm going to say closed door meetings. No, quite a few of my members, Democrat members will certainly help craft policy with Republicans. I think as we go later, I don't want to jump to your agenda. If we talk about open enrollment in schools, one of my members, Paula Brown, had been a school teacher for 30 years, worked at the school union for many years, and she first thoroughly disliked the sponsor's language for open enrollment and said, look, if you don't have this, 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 and this in it, I'm never helping to support you. He rewrote his bill and he put every single thing in there that she had said you need to have. Now, she's not supportive that there have been been changes, but she supported it for a while until then there were more amendments and challenges and differences. So now she doesn't. But yes, they will listen to us on policy opportunities. And we have a good number of members that really have expertise on policy that quite often is included in a conversation. But when it comes down to, I'm going to say closed doors, yeah. not really, not really. That's committee work and preparation work, but closed down, what are we going to do? Do we want to do this? What amendment gets on? Which one doesn't? No, we're not included in that. Yeah. Well, we actually got a lot of questions for you on our Instagram about some Missouri state politics. So I I had a few I wanted to ask you before we get into everything today. First of all, someone asked what the favorite part of your district is. And the second thing I think is a great question is how to keep up with Missouri state house bills that keep coming up. My favorite part of my district or of my job? District. It's always the ice cream shop. (laughs) I love it. Do you have a favorite flavor? Well, I like hot fudge sundaes. And if you go to the right place, they have raspberries and raspberry sauce that they put on. Love so it. Oh my God, sign me up. Sign okay. me up. <laughs> yeah. So that's always the favorite part. Following bills in Missouri, and I think the Missouri House website is really well done, but it's still an intricate, complicated process. You can go to legislation. And if you know a bill number, you can put that in. And then the whole calendar comes up of what's happened with that legislation. It's been first read. It's been second read. It's been referred to committee. It's had a committee hearing. It's received the vote. It's been referred to a rules committee. It passed there. And now it's on the House. It's been third read on the House. And now it's been referred to the Senate. So the calendar will pop right up for you. But you can still see how tedious it is. I might have just quickly listened to you a three-month process. So you have to keep checking back on where it is. There is an organization called fastdemocracy.com that has put all, I think, and they do all states, have put that in in a way that you can go and tell them what topics you're interested in in Missouri and that they get you, I believe, a daily email on what's happening with bills that you're looking for. So fastdemocracy.com, they do have a free version for the public. They also then have a professional version that they will sell subscriptions to to lobbyists and organizations that are truly following legislation from a professional point of view. But that's an easier way to probably follow, Maddie, what's happening in the House. You can go to a member's website through the Missouri House. Again, pull up MissouriHouse.com and find a member. You click on their name. And on the right-hand side of the page, it tells you what legislation they've sponsored. And then you can click there and see what's happened with their legislation. So there's multiple ways. I think the House does a great job at having that available. It's just tedious and cumbersome to really keep track of what's going on. Totally. I always find it so interesting, the differences between different states' websites. 
Some are amazing. You're like, okay, wow, they're like 21st century, let's go. And they really break down the language of the bills and everything. The summaries are fantastic. And others, you're like, this is circa like the start of the internet. No one knows how to act, like read it. Or even if you like actually look up the bill, it's so oddly organized that you have no idea what you're looking at. You're like, this would take 10 professionals to dissect and to try to actually figure out. So I always love when there's actually a state website that does it great, but that's another great resource too. And we'll yeah. definitely make sure that's in the show notes. That's for sure. Yeah. And what, what's interesting is the House does a great job and the Missouri Senate doesn't. Oh. The Missouri Senate is so much more challenging to go through their website. And what's also just fascinating, and I get it's an upper chamber and I get there's more prestige and I get there's more, you know, pomp and circumstance. We all, 163 of us in the Missouri House, have a computer on our desk. The Senate doesn't allow it. So there's wow, nobody else has a computer on their desk. And they carry these paper files to and from the floor to their office with the bills and the amendments and their talking points. And of course, as the year proceeds, some of them have two and three of these big file folder carriers that they carry down to the floor and back to their office every day. And, yeah. and it is a little wild and crazy that they don't plug computers on those senators' desks. That, that is, is really bananas. weird. Yeah. And then you'd think that it'd honestly be the Senate over the House that would have that. But no. interesting. One yeah, other thing, that's... too, that someone asked that I think was also it's also kind of in line with this is how to keep up with local and state politics. Like if you don't have access to cable, which is an interesting question. I feel like something we kind of talk about a lot because like a lot of young people don't watch cable anymore. Do you have any tips of like kind of maybe media to consume that you can learn more about local and state? I, I would certainly just say your local papers. And then we have an organization called Missouri Independent. It is a Missouri-based online newspaper. They send out a daily email Monday through Friday, and then I think a summary on Saturday. It's a state house organization, and I do believe they're going into more states and they are truly covering theory politics again. I think there was a gap between when newspapers did so well to the decline of papers and the loss of reporters. Our Missouri Independence does an amazing job writing up stories, perspective, having some backroom dirt. So look and see if your state has that, if you're Missouri, Missouri Independent. But I know Iowa has one, so it has a state's room. So I think... It is an organization that is attempting to cover politics locally much better than the challenge we've had over maybe the last 15 years. But local papers, certainly the NPR station, you're always going to have news at the top and the bottom of the hour that will reference something that's happening politically for everybody to remember that most state houses are in the spring from January to May-ish. I forget there's a state their legislature meets every other year. Everybody's just slightly different. Illinois, I think, is a year-round legislature, although I think they have months at a time that they may not be in session. So everybody's a little bit different in how they run their legislative schedule. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I would also suggest too, like to sign up for or subscribe to different like local newspapers, like newsletters or like kind of digital articles too. I think that's a good thing. Usually those will come to your inbox and you can kind of keep, keep in touch that way. But a lot of times, let me give you one more. A lot of times your local elected may put out a newsletter. Mm -hmm. I put out a newsletter every two weeks. So go to who your state rep is, who your state senator is, see if they send out a newsletter, sign up for it. I attempt to be pretty factual on what's going on. And of course, my newsletter has a partisan angle to it. So if you're elected as a Republican, know that you might have that angle to it, but you're still going to know what's going on. And then, of course, congressional. Anybody at the congressional level most likely has a newsletter that they'd be happy to put you on their list. Yeah. Totally. We love those newsletters for a million reasons. But especially since I think it's really hard to find resources like, oh, my God, something got funding and there's a grant. And you're like, but yeah. where do I find that? Like, is my rep bringing that down to my district? Like, where is that? And then most of the time it's available in the newsletter and regardless, too, of the party of that representative. So I think you're so on point. It's such an underrated, underutilized tool. So love a newsletter. 
honestly, like an inbox moment is what I live for. I think it just makes things very easy. But yes. nonetheless, speaking of grants and things sort of in that monetary category, we need to get into our I have a stupid question segment. And we need to know about the state budget. So the first question here is, who has the final say on the state budget? I'm going to say there are three people. The House Budget Chair, the Senate's Appropriate Chair, Appropriations, which is the same thing. They call it different, Senate versus House, and then our governor. So the House Budget Chair pretty much controls what happens on the House version. The Senate's Appropriations Chair pretty much does the same thing on the Senate. And that wrangles all of the members in line. Yes, you can put this on. No, you can't. Here's our finished product. Then those two chairmen, and I say chairmen, I don't think Missouri has ever had a woman be on an appropriations or budget chair position at all. The two gentlemen sit down and hash out the differences. The House, the House cut funding for public libraries this year. The Senate's most likely going to put it back in. And then those two guys sit down and say, well, which one do we go with? They decide, but then we as a budget committees will have a conference committee and we get to weigh in on that at the end, but not as heavily as these two people. The governor then gets to sign it. And then in Missouri, probably most states, we have a line item veto. The governor can sign the budget except for these 20 items. And, and the budget really is right now in Missouri is 20 different bills that cover all of the categories of what government's involved in. And so the governor, I'm going to say, can have that final say is, I'm going to sign your budget, but I don't like these 10 things you did and just wipe them out with a veto. Interesting. Kind of crazy. Power grab. Wait. Also, can the supermajority veto the line items that are X'd out by the governor or no? Yes. And, and anybody can. One of the years I actually had gotten a provision in our budget that the then governor vetoed. And so any member on the floor can ask for a veto override vote. And there have been a couple. I, I was not successful because then the majority tries to back their governor, right? So as a Democrat, I'm asking for a veto override on something that a Republican governor vetoed. Republicans aren't necessarily going to stand with me on that. But I do believe since I've been in the House once or twice, the Republicans have overturned one of the Republican governor's line items. So yes, that can happen. And we have a special session in September. It is veto session. And so we have on the schedule today, when I know I'll go back to Jeff City in September. So if the governor has vetoed anything, that's the day that we go and attend it. Makes sense. Well, next question in this bucket is what is a budget surplus? A budget surplus is when you have more money in the bank than you have said you're going to spend in the next fiscal year. God, isn't that really? nice? <laughs> Sounds great. Sounds amazing. Love, love that. Are budget surpluses common? Is that? I'm going to say no, but okay. the pandemic has just totally rearranged financing for states right now. There has been such a huge amount of federal dollars that have flooded states. I keep reminding people today, Missouri has $17 billion in the bank. The month wow. before the pandemic, we had $3.5 billion. And so oh. you can see that huge difference in money. That's insane. It is. And my issue is Republicans are hoarding it. So we, at the end of last year's budget process, they said we had $6 billion in surplus. I keep pretty good eye on how much is in the bank month to month to month. Missouri has never dipped below having $15 billion in the bank since our budget year started last year in July. Why do you and think they hoard it? Concerns of what's coming next. We've had inflation. Are we going to have a recession? Oh my goodness, if we have a recession, that money will dry up in a heartbeat, blah, blah, blah. I think part of why we have sustained such a high amount of revenue is with the inflation, things cost more, so we get more sales tax. But the pandemic pushed everybody to online sales. So we, and online sales used to not have revenue attached. The Wayfair Supreme Court ruling allows us to tax internet sales. Missouri Passets, so now we're getting sales, our revenue on all internet sales. 
but people spent a whole lot more. I think this morning was the first time I heard that spending was down last month by 1% since truly this whole pandemic inflation started. And so that's boosted our revenues as well. But mostly I think they're hoarding it. And the last thing, Maddie, is I think the Republicans feel the larger your state budget is, the bigger your government is. So if we can keep our budget smaller, then it looks like we have smaller government. Wow, that makes, that's a little tricky one. But I think that really checks. Yeah, Yeah. that checks from from the Republican point of view, for sure. Totally. Well, I also think that tag teams perfectly into the question that we were going to ask, which is about federal allocations. When you guys are creating a budget, is it just state funds that are going in, you know, from state tax revenue, or is it also inclusive of federal money that's been allocated to the state? It's also inclusive of all the federal dollars. And before we had the pandemic, our budget used to be close to one third general revenue, that's personal taxes, sales tax, one third federal dollars, and one third what we call other funds, fees. We charge people to put petroleum tanks in. There's all kinds of other revenue that a state collects. So it used to be a third, a third, a third. Last year's state budget in Missouri was 50% federal dollars and 25% general revenue and other sources of income. That is wild on so many degrees, including just thinking of like, okay, if it's federal dollars, that means it's also tax money coming from people from other states. So, so many people across this country, whether they live in Missouri or not, are supporting the budget in Missouri. And I think people often forget about that connection of like, What's happening in another state does impact you and it does impact your taxes in your state because, again, you're sending money elsewhere through federal grants and allocations. You've heard, I'm sure, some of the conversation about blue states pay more into federal tax than they get back. Red states have a tendency to take more federal dollars back than they put in. Missouri is still, certainly, we take more back than we put in. And so there is starting to be a little bit of that conversation, a little bit louder, as Republican policies trying to ding blue state taxes, Trump's tax cut had a little bit of that in it that people who lived in blue states who might be financially doing a little bit better got dinged a little bit more for taxes than those in rent states. And so there is a little bit of that yin and yang that's going on. Yeah. Totally. Well, we want to, we're going to jump into some education stuff as well. So before we do, we have a few questions, including what is a school voucher? Can you kind of explain that part of things too? A school voucher is when you take public tax dollars and you give it to private schools. Quite often private schools here in Missouri are religious in nature. Mm. That is interesting. And I would be curious to decide, like looking at all the different states, which states have the most religious private schools versus not versus secular and what that sort of breakdown looks like. I have no idea what those numbers are, but just like thinking about that, I'm like, "Hmm, now I'm very curious. But regardless, that's a rabbit hole for after. What is a charter school? Um, Sammy, a charter school is a pseudo public school. It has enrollment for public students. It takes, so a student is going to school A, they want to go to charter school B, 90% of the public dollars that would go to school A, the public school, goes to that charter school for that student. So it directly strips public dollars out of the public school to send it to the charter school, but still only 90% of it. And unfortunately for me, though, a lot of times, oh, charter schools shouldn't be able to prevent you from enrolling, but of course they have limitations. Most charter schools, in my experience, do not have the opportunity to meet special needs for our students with various physical or developmental disabilities. So an awful lot of times your your charter schools do not offer all of those opportunities. And then they get to a point, they say, oops, sorry, we're full. We can't take you. Public schools have to take everybody all the time with no exceptions. And charter schools are a little bit more selective on who they have to take. And yet they they do get 90% of the public dollars that would have gone to your public school then siphoned off into the charter school. Got it. That is actually so, it's so interesting in so many ways, but I actually saw a TikTok the other day and the creator was saying that the majority of people that went to either a charter school or a private, especially religious school, 
most likely have never met someone with a disability. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. Kept listening. And they point to that. It's because those schools don't have to accommodate Mm-hmm. people with disabilities, whether it's physical, whether it's, you know, mental, whatever it may be. And I was like, I have never thought about that, but yeah, same, game changer. Actually. That's really interesting. Yep. Well, we want to talk about education a little bit in Missouri specifically, obviously that's why you're here. Like, can you kind of explain what the state of education is like in Missouri? We know that it's 49th in the nation, I believe. So why is that? Can you explain kind of what, what all of that looks like? I think it, Goes back to what we talked about budget. We're a pretty stingy state. So we're 49th on what we pay for education. We're last in the nation for what we pay our teachers, for what we pay our government workers. I think it's just we're a stingy state. And what is, (laughs) what's very frustrating is we have a school foundation formula. It is a, I don't think it's even that complicated, a mathematical equation for every student average daily attendant, they go to school, this is how much money we give that school per child. So it's a school foundation formula. And if we fund that, which we do, we have fully funded the formula for the last seven years, they pat themselves on the back and say, we're done. This year, average daily attendance, again, part of what that formula is based on, has gone down. So most school attendance is not back up to pre-pandemic levels. You have more kids maybe being homeschooled. You have some students who just still can't handle the emotional fullness of being in school. And so maybe they're in school two days a week or three days a week. So school attendance is down. So then reimbursement is down in Missouri because part of the formula is based on your attendance. Wow. We have stripped out $100 million this year from this foundation formula, but because the attendance is down and because we are still funding exactly what that formula tells us to fund, the Republicans are already saying we have fully funded the school formula. Wow. And that's so ironic, too, because it's like if school attendance is down and then you're taking more and more resources out of it, you're going to have more and more people pulling their kids from the schools and either homeschooling their kids, finding another solution, whatever it may be. And so then it just keeps getting worse and worse because more and more funding keeps being pulled out based on that. Because who would want to send their kid to a school that doesn't have any resources? Absolutely no one. And Sammy, it says, so if if you have 96% attendance and you've got you know, $100 million last year for your school. I'm totally making that number up. But now your average daily attendance went down to 93%. Now I'm only going to give you $93,000 instead of $100,000. It's not like you have fewer teachers or classrooms or roofs or janitors or books or cafeteria because you lost 3% of your population. Right. And we still will fully fund the foundation formula, but keep three, six, what did, what was my example? $6,000, right? right? And right now, Missouri's average daily attendance is just less than 95%. And think of any place that it dips down, then we lose monies. That yeah. is wild. I'm bad at math, but that's just bad math. You know, like that's an <laughs> right. equation I don't love. No. No, I don't either. And especially the frustration of them saying, we fully funded the foundation formula and you ripped out a hundred million dollars. Yeah. So is that foundation formula like specific to Missouri or is that how a lot of states function? Most likely, Maddie, I don't have that correlation in having been with other states. Most likely it's unique to us. Although I'd have to think other states have some similar formula. That's an interesting point. Because yeah. if we're funding at 49%, and then we let pretty taxes fill in a lot for that. It's great if you live in a, a district or in an area that has nice homes that people can pay property tax with. Exactly. Yeah, that's a little bit of a broken system, perhaps. You, I you either yourselves or know people who feel that truly a Republican plan is to have public education be so poor that we have people who are not educated. Right. You know about Jess Piper in our state, who's just amazing. She says, look, 
the rich people want my kids to work for their kids. I don't have good education in my area. My children aren't getting a good education. But if you're rich and you're sending your kids to private schools, you want your kid to be able to hire my kid who does not have a good education and a low wage. And they're just mounting evidence that you have to wonder if that's not in the long run their plan. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the Republicans have a long history and not just in Missouri of long-term plans. I don't like their plans, but they're intelligent. They know how to actually dismantle a system piece by piece. And I think one of their big strategies we've seen time and time again is to absolutely defund different programs, bad name them, see, oh, they're not working. These programs are terrible. So let's defund them even more until they're not functional. And then they've gotten rid of them and provided or succeeded in whatever you know, their goal is, which is smart, but wild. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's just like also, and it's just like how capitalism works too. It's like, there's gotta be someone who's going to work those low wage jobs, but yeah, that's actually wild also to like, look at it in that way and like, see how it plays out and like how our systems just continue to be in this like oppressive cycle. And a lot of it stems from education, like across the board, across the country. So it's just such a good example of that. And we have a question too, for like one more bill on education is an open enrollment bill that it's on the table that allows students to transfer out of their district school. Can you tell us about this bill a little bit and like what its impacts and implications would be? Missouri has, oh goodness, you knew this, 524 school districts was it quite a few. And so right now you need to go to school in the school district that you live in. And there are conversations and they've We've had them for a while that, well, let's just make that be open enrollment. So now if you live in a poorer area and as a parent, you don't feel your child's receiving the same education as another, you want your kid to go to the rich school district. So you want your child and who doesn't want their child to have a good education? They all do. But the idea is that you can take your kid and put them in any school you want them to be put in. For me, it's a different way of why don't we just fund the schools that aren't doing this well? If we know it's a high poverty area, we know they don't have property taxes. We know they don't have the money that the rich school districts have. Why are we not just supplementing them in a way to bring their education up? What open enrollment has done in other states, it has just devastated the areas of low income because any parent who can gets their kids to the better schools. But then you decrease your population in your schools. We've talked about if you don't have as many students, you don't have as many dollars, it just falls right downhill. But if your schools suffer to that degree, your neighborhoods do, you don't have the same communities, the kids are being trucked to different school districts in the area. So the entire community suffers because of it as well. And it is just a way to further take away from different communities What's interesting with the open enrollment and even with the school vouchers, it has been a challenge. They have passed, but barely with 82 or 83 votes, which is the minimum you need. And when you have 111 or more supermajority and you still only get 82 to pass, you know there's a lot of Republicans not voting for this. They know their schools are the center of their communities, and they know private schools, school vouchers, and open enrollment are going to hurt their communities, as much as those of us who live in the suburban areas know it will help, uh, it will hurt the areas of low income. And so there's at least a common factor there that this will hurt schools across our state. And one other thing we did want to just touch on within this larger education conversation is libraries. You know, we were mentioned earlier is the House wants to defund libraries and There's definitely a lot of different POVs on this and the purpose and all of that. I'm just curious, one, your take, and two, what the conversations have looked like just on libraries. You know, what is this attack on books, on libraries, on, you know, our safe spaces in our communities? Right. There's an expression, the power of the purse is the person who has the money has the power. A year ago, Missouri banned pornography from being in books in libraries. And the ACLU, along with the Missouri Library Association, has sued 
Missouri over banning a book. And so the the fine gentlemen on the Republican Party in budget were just appalled that somebody would question their ability to ban pornography in libraries. And so the budget chair stripped out the four and a half million dollars of public dollars that we support libraries across Missouri. Now, first off, most libraries don't have the pornography they're talking about. But second of all, there have been as many as 300 books pulled from different libraries across our state because there was a punitive penalty in the bill that passed. If we found a book that I decided you shouldn't have, I could criminally hold you accountable. So school districts across the state, libraries across the state said, wow, what would they think of this book? Maybe we should take it off the shelf. So it was a book ban. The ACLU is suing to not have that be in place. There's a word that I've only ever heard in Missouri's budget. It's called fungible. So the idea is that if the Missouri Library Association is suing, we should not give public libraries money because they might use some of that money to sue us with. Makes no sense. It is why Missouri attempted to defund Planned Parenthood for for many, many years. If we give money to Planned Parenthood, they might use some of that money to do abortion. Mm. No, because they are separate entities. Planned Parenthood is not the association that did abortions. Planned Parenthood affiliates are. No, there is a flaw between those dollars. No, they don't mix. And yet we're not going to fund well women care, well health care and Planned Parenthood because some of that money might actually help pay for abortion. So they kept using this term fungible there and they brought it back out again for our libraries. So it's atrocious. They got their feelings hurt that they're being sued. I tried to point out to them, this isn't democracy. There are three branches of government. One is the yeah. legislature. Two is the judiciary. And if you have a challenge with what the legislature did, you go to the judiciary to ask them to resolve it. And so they're not doing anything different than the foundation of democracy says you have the opportunity to do. Yet it offended the budget chair. So he took out four and a half million dollars funding for public libraries. And they say that women are the emotional ones. Um, <laughs> yet another argument against that. So, you know. Yeah, we've seen a lot of pictures recently, right? I, I know there are different views that you see in Hillary Clinton sitting for, what, eight hours in testimony, however many years ago that was. The woman yeah. was the ambassador from Ukraine who sat in a hearing who was as calm as could be. There were two or three pictures of that. And then, of course, you see Donald Trump and Lindsey Graham and Tucker Carlson red in the face, spewing anger. Yeah, it is interesting. Oh, yeah. That I have so many thoughts on that whole conversation. And that's one of those rabbit hole tangents that maybe we'll just avoid for the day, but can be a whole episode in itself. But thank you so much for coming on. This was such a great deep dive into not only everything Missouri state politics, but also just some of the kind of intricacies of how state politics work. We're always trying to kind of uncover everything so people can have a better understanding of how their state government works. I think it's so important. So thank you for coming on and answering all our questions. Well, I'm thrilled. I I thank you both for reaching out to us. We were very happy to hear you, your request, and just thrilled to be with you today. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you.